and welcome to episode 22 of Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media, and before we get going, a quick note to say that we at True Media are thinking of everyone affected by this COVID-19 outbreak, and we hope everyone stays safe and healthy during these crazy times. This week on the show, we are starting a champion series in which we talk to employees of teams that have won titles in the past year. We'll start things off this week with Ravi Ramaneni, the director of soccer analytics for the Seattle Sounders, who defeated Toronto in MLS Cup last year for their second MLS title in four years. Ravi has been with Seattle for seven years, and the Sounders have won four trophies in that span, two MLS Cups, one U.S. Open Cup, and a Supporters' Shield. As Ravi will explain, he works on everything from on-field strategy to the salary cap to player recruitment. And in our conversation, he'll talk about what a typical week and match day look like for him, how his job has changed in seven years with the Sounders, his thoughts on three different types of analytics and how they're used, his path from India to the U.S. to an MLS club, advice for people looking to enter the industry, and being married to a data analyst for another soccer club. Then, Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with the Seattle Sounders' Ravi Ramaneni. We're joined now on expected value by Ravi Ramaneni, director of soccer analytics for the reigning MLS Cup champion, Seattle Sounders. Ravi, welcome to the show. Uh, before we really dive into kind of exactly what you do and how you got here, let's talk for a minute about how life is and work have changed for you as this COVID-19 situation has escalated, especially where you are in the Seattle area. Uh, we know some people are having much more difficult times than we are. I think we both have good perspective about how you know fortunate we are and we're not facing life-altering challenges yet. But I also think people are curious. Like what happens when your job with a team that usually involves practices, games, and all the stuff that goes along with that, that's all on hold? So that's kind of a long-winded way of getting to my first question. What has work been like for you the last couple of weeks? Uh, Paul, thanks for having me on the call uh, on the for the podcast. Really appreciate that. And yeah, the last two weeks have been very, very new for everyone. I think the change has been very dramatic. So normally, I am working. I, I have multiple projects and things going on, like looking at what who the, the next opponents were playing and and the transfer window because transfer window is still open and, you know, it closes in May in MLS and working on those and also just, you know, salary cap because we have, we were just had to be compliant on March 1st, like just before our first game was played. So we just got mm-hmm. compliant there and then adjusted everything. And now we know exactly what we have going forward. So, but now it's because none of that, all of that is a little uncertain right now. We're just waiting for direction from the league. Um, and it, and then the league is waiting for direction from the governments and the health and situation. So what we've pivoted to is just infrastructure projects that we have on our list that we need to do, um, but we can't. It's harder to prioritize higher during the regular season, and sure. and also some ideas that we have, some a little bit more, I wouldn't say crazy or anything, but more like left 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 field. That's what they use in baseball. Mm-hmm. More yep. more 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 out there type ideas like oh why don't we try this now because we don't really have much to do um in terms of so we have a little bit of time like that to work on those um so that's how it's been but to be honest like the last week and a half has been very difficult to concentrate on work i think it is just just so many things going around just trying to 
trying to get accustomed to the new reality that every day there is a lot of news that is not very that is sad frankly mm-hmm. and and just just kind of getting to grips of okay this is trying to listen to the experts and you know doctors and epidemiologists and to see because as as I, as you said Seattle was one of the early hotspots and, and so there's there has been a lot of cases here um, although New York has now taken over I mean it's a much bigger much bigger population uh, right it still feels like here we are very careful and I mean there's not a lot of people on the streets there are some but there's not a lot most of the places are closed except groceries and pharmacies and and gas stations mm-hmm. so it is taking some time for the new normal to sink in and mm-hmm. I think that's that's why it has it's been a real hard, real hard to focus on the projects even though we have some oh this is a lot of time and we can use this to do xyz it's just harder to context switch while everything else that's going on around but we've kind of progressed I think over the last week and this weekend it's like okay this is how it's going to be for the foreseeable future so um, just internalizing that and compartmentalizing it so we can move forward I bet that's tough I mean I'm in a place in Kansas that's been pretty much untouched and I know how distracted and frazzled at times I've gotten just dealing with all this from a distance and I'm sure it's it's much tougher when you're right in the middle of it. So let's kind of take a step back and talk about what you typically do for Seattle. Let's pretend it's a relatively normal week. You've got one game on Saturday. We'll say, what does your week normally look like as the director of soccer analytics for the Sounders? Well, I think it depends on which part of the year the week is, but Mm -hmm. say it's the beginning of the year. So we're still in that transfer window, but we're just switching focus to matches now. Um, so if I have a game this Saturday and a game next Saturday, I think by by Monday of this week, everything I need to do to prepare for the next opponent is done and it's already sent to the coaching staff and, you know, myself and the video analysts together. But Tuesday, Wednesday is when we try to get some feedback and see if there's anything extra we need to do specific to a team or a player or um, and, at, and also this time of the year, it's a little difficult because of the new, just the season started, a lot of new faces and teams. But mm-hmm. in general, if you say if it's a July or a June, it's pre- pretty much we are two weeks ahead in terms of preparing for the game. Um, so by, by the time we're in Wednesday of uh, week this week, um, my job is already looking at the, the opponent of the next week. Um, and if there is multiple games, we're looking at multiple opponents next week. And then that's that's on the the opponent analysis and preparation of games side. Then there is the scouting or recruitment side, which depending on where we are in terms of transfer window and what our needs are, there might be more or less work. And you know, there for example, there was a lot of work this off season because we signed two two players, two um, high high price right. players. One of them center back, Yamar, and the other um, Joe Paulo, the center midfielder. Mm-hmm. So that that was more was more hectic, and we were entering a phase where um, we were relatively okay on the recruitment side, just kind of doing the long-term projects. Like, okay, what are the list of six or seven right backs, six or seven left backs, six or seven central midfielders, all that type of so just so that just keep those lists ready, just in case we need to act on one of those. That's the phase we were entering. 
And then that changes again. Like if we come closer to May and say we were playing in a normal year, then we're probably close to signing someone or thinking about signing someone. Because a lot of times that the thing that I think outside, you know, fans or people don't see is if we sign one or two players a year, maybe three or four, but we probably negotiate with 25, 30. Mm. And then there's a lot of lot of information that flows between us and the, and the agents and and the, and the players that right. we look at and, you know, between our scouts and and then you know prices don't match or won't work out and and so and then you know there are some deals that come very close and then they they fail due to one of the many reasons that can happen. Um, so and most of them are involved around money, of course. Um, right. uh, it, but but I think there is a lot that goes on even though sometimes we come through a window without signing a player, but it would, it would have been one of the busiest ones because we probably talked to so many players, but it didn't work out with anyone. And so, yeah, so there is, there is that part. And the other part that I do that is also has, that probably isn't that much of work on a day-to-day basis is the managing the salary cap of the team. Mm-hmm. So I know um, I put together the different financial models for Goth, our president, so that right. he knows that um, because of the way it works is that we identify players between the scouts, um, myself, Garth, and the coaching staff. And we identify, okay, these are the top players that we want to go after for this position. And then we go one by one and we get the numbers in terms of money. And then there will be one or two that are probably out of the range. There's not much of a discussion. So they're out. Then maybe there are some that we need to probably push a little bit forward so we might need to get extra permission or extra money from the ownership group. So, so that part is done. But then there is the other part that I push to um, golf is like, okay, if we sign this player at this price, this is how the salary cap is going to look like the next three years. Mm-hmm. Um, and what this means with all existing contracts, we may not have money or we may have, what is our flexibility left, say, coming next year or if we sign players in January or February, would that would that take away some of our ability to change course of action in the summer if we have to do something um, drastically? So, so those are the things that we have multiple models floating around. So we just try to pick, given all with all the information available, pick the model that is more satisfies the risk appetite right. and sort solves the problem at that point. Then from a on a game day, for example, you like you travel with the team regularly. What is your typical role like on a game day during the match, before and after? So on game days, I don't travel to every away game. I do mm-hmm. some, but not all of them. At home games, I help the the video analyst to get whatever the clips or um, information that the coaches need at halftime to talk to the players. I mean, it's it's a it's a very evolving thing because of technology and how FIFA has been changing rules to yep. communicate with the benches. So we've been experimenting with different technologies and different ways to communicate. And I think that's been one that's evolved a lot. It evolved from a point where uh, I would go downstairs from from the from our booth around the 42nd minute with mm-hmm. the full raw footage up to that point and all the events we tagged to that point. And then, you know, set it up inside the locker room for when coaches come, they want to see. And so we would have had a chat before of what are the things that they want to see on that given day. Most of the days it's the same, but sometimes it's different. 
so we were like, okay, I want to see when when we lose the ball, the distance between our two central midfielders and our two center backs, or when when we have when we win the ball back in the final third, where are where are our central midfielders with respect to our outside attacking players? So different things like that. So we 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 try to um, capture all those and have the clips sent down to the to the bench now because now they allow you to send the clips to the bench mm-hmm. or take it down to the locker room and then have everything at so there's some like a goal or set pieces. Uh, set pieces is one that be very interesting that coaches always like to see. And then, you know, there are times, there are moments where we will show specific clips to like a certain group of players or certain individuals like the outside backs or the full other midfielders or attackers on how we need to break someone down. Um, so that's that's part I play at um, game day. You touched on a little bit there how things have changed so much, FIFA laws and what you can have on the bench and stuff like that. What else from an analytics perspective, what else has changed and how has it changed in these seven years you've been with Seattle? Well, I think for one, uh, my role has evolved a lot. So when I first joined, it was um, I was hired by Dave Tenney, who was the high performance director at the time, and now he's with Orlando Magic. And my initial job was to set up the infrastructure for sports science data, mm-hmm. and that's how I started. So my first couple of years was a lot of um, managing the GPS, heart rate, mm-hmm. and all other test data we do, and setting up like a database structure and a, and a front end so that there is a way that the sports scientists can upload data into the into the system and then they can see a like a report um, and on the other side or, or ana- analyze the data to maybe build some models for different models like fatigue or some risk factor modeling. Um, so that was my initial, that's how I started. And I think overall I would say is that um, one thing that probably changed is, is I think there is a lot more acceptance or a lot more, a lot more. Uh, I think today data is and analysis is seen a part of part of the process mm-hmm. very much more. It's not even a question anymore. Like it's just daily process now. But but I think, you know, like it needed some time to build the trust and show that it is a reliable and a useful tool and make better decisions. And that's what has changed. I think, you know, I talk to our president Goff every day and a lot of times we have big arguments too about, you know, what we need to do, <laughs> how we need to do. And and it's uh, it's a lot, and all of them are constructive because I think we, we know each other where we come from. I mean, I have the same thing with our assistant coaches as well. And a lot of time it's it can get very heated, but it's mostly very, very constructive. And there is always, I, I like to put it this way, there's always a healthy argument about the data we're looking at or the metrics we're looking at are the appropriate ones. But there is rarely ever an argument that whether we should look at the data and metrics. I think that's the big change, I would say. I like the way you summarize that. It's not whether you should use it, it's what you should use instead. That's that's good. Has the interest of, of we'll say, players changed over that time too? Like, uh, do they come looking for data or maybe video driven by data now a lot more than they used to? Players are generally, uh, most players, I think players are, there's, you know, just like any, any like uh, population, there is mm-hmm. like a, there is an average, there is a upper quartile, lower quartile, everything. Uh, so, but I think in general, what, 
because we do expose them to the metrics that we track, like in terms of like, okay, this is what we were trying to do on the field. Like there's a lot of jargon that, that has now entered into player jargon. Like, you know, when, when the coach talks, the player uses the terms, it's just like people don't even blink anymore. Like there used to be a time when every time Brian mentioned something like that in the, in the, in the meeting, players would look at me and like, and, and try to make fun of me. But I think now, I think, yeah, but now I think everybody is like, you know, there's always going to be, players are always um, interesting in the sense that they, they'll try to make fun of you, but uh, fun of things like that. But I think in the end, you know, when they see that it works and um, they are used to it, and the, the days that we don't say, publish the report or put it out in the Nordish board, there's always going to be questions when I walk by, it's like, hey, where is the report for today's match? <laughs> Or where the report for yesterday's match. So that's always a good um, metric or measure to see whether it's being used or not. But then, as I said, like there are different types of players. Some like it. Some like just video. Some people like to look at data and video. And then there will be some that it doesn't matter. They'll just watch the video that the coach shows them, and that's it. And so we do have like an app where players have accounts, and we just send clips onto their phones. It's nothing groundbreaking. It's every almost every team has it now. It's just that it's something that we've streamlined the workflow where we send clips to players. It's really useful for the younger, like academy players that are playing or training with the first team. They mm-hmm. are really into it, and it's really like an instructional tool for them. And we also invite or bring like small groups of players during the week to show specific clips, um, like you know position based. So like a like Jimmy Triori will bring all the defenders and show something to them, whether it's based on what happened the previous week or or what we might face in the next game. So yeah, we use video a lot. I think video is something that everybody's comfortable with. What my work a lot of times involves with our video analyst Jorge, Jorge Valera, is that we try to try to see, okay, this is what I'm looking at in data as a pattern. What is happening or how does it manifest in the video on the field? Right. So that for us, it's an easier way if we can show on the video that, hey, this is what I mean when I put this number up here. So don't think it is something different. Because a lot of times people lose track of the fact that the data is nothing but it's generated from what they've done on the field. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's a very simple thing, but people think this is coming from like a black box. And a lot of my communication skills or role as a communicator involves demystifying that saying there's just nothing if you guys don't do it then i won't see this data so right. so that type of stuff yeah no that's important and just making sure they know when you say this you mean this and sometimes yeah you're almost a translator of sorts uh, what about i'm curious about the new second spectrum data mls has a deal with uh second spectrum for player tracking this year it's, i know it's a brand new thing for you so it may not be fully yeah. explored but but at least what is maybe so, interesting to you about this the last two years we have tracking data but we were working with another company called metrica mm-hmm. they used to collect the data a little differently like we had to set up the cameras every game our video analyst tom childs who used to be our video analyst till last year he used to set up in every wherever you go he would take the box and set it up it was a little bit difficult but we're used to that type of data but i think with second spectrum specifically just the getting the league-wide data so yeah. that opens up a lot more than just your own team. Honestly, we've just started digging into the data. We're, we're at the point where we're just trying to get familiar with it, like the way they tag something or the way they, they measure or 
create different metrics like how are they smoothing the data how are they so we're just getting to know it at this point mm -hmm. and i think that's one of the bigger infrastructure projects is to set up all that pipeline to a point where we can start doing analysis and cool stuff when we start playing a game um, because they their infrastructure where we can collect their data and then putting it into our database and what should be the structure of our database be because it's going to be as i said you know in a full league season there are 432 matches now that's the big project we're working on so they're also giving us opta events because they use opta events for right. kind of matching the frames with yeah. the event but they're also giving us some special uh, markings where we ask them to do some of the metrics that the coaches tend to ask normally one of the famous ones nowadays is the is the one where how many players you bypass with the pass right. and you know how often do you do that and uh, things like that and there's there are some things that they've added on top of it to sort of add more rich context to the data so very interested in those yeah just getting getting down to the details and making sure that the data we're getting is correct and and like you know there's no other issues with in the data itself that we need to understand like uh, what happens when the ball goes out every every company treats that a little differently or when mm -hmm. they consider it to be ball goes out so we're just getting through all those so that once we get to a point where okay we understand all the little issues in this and it is consistent now and then we can go ahead and analyzing so we're, we are at that phase right now early stage if you ask me this question three months from now maybe i'll have a better answer yeah no that's understandable in one article i read you were talking about kind of three kinds of data that i think often get kind of mixed together when discussing you know analytics we'll say uh, you said descriptive, predictive, and prescriptive. Could you kind of yeah. walk me through those definitions and what the most challenging thing is kind of to get right from your perspective? Uh, okay, yeah. So this is from an old slide of uh, ours. So descriptive is describing what just happened. So it's like your match report and you're saying things like, okay, we had 55 passes and connected mm -hmm. 50 of them created four good chances with an expected value of this much and it scored and all that. So that's your um, that's your description. So just describing what happened. And then based on that, you can use your uh, knowledge and your, you know, what experience to say, okay, I think this is why this happened or this is why this happened and reason it out and you go from there right. um, to build like a summary. Predictive is more what is likely to happen if you do a certain action or what is likely to happen if you so like your expected goal model is a good example of a predictive data meaning if you take the shot from a certain location uh, with certain characteristics depending on how much of a context you have whether if you just have event data just xy and whether he'd taken shot with his weak foot or strong foot some of that details built into your model then you say Okay, if uh, Raul takes a shot from this spot, there's a likelihood of 25% chance that this could be a goal. So right. that's just pre predicting that what what could happen. So prescriptive is more um, what you should be doing to get the desired outcome. So you're telling the team that look, this is the great way to attack. This this is how we create higher value chances. So we need to train this way so that we can create more high value chances. So for example, if the coach can take the information I give and say like, okay, I understand this. So to get the desired outcome of creating high value chances, 
I need to train these movements because because obviously I'm not a coach mm-hmm. and I can only I'm, I'm my expertise is different. I can come up with and say like have this is what we need to do. This is these are the spaces that are really valuable on the field. And then the coach can take that because they are then use their expertise to say like, okay, this is how I want our players to act when they get to this area of the field. These are the runs I want them to practice so they become automatic. Because it's not that they should come there and think, oh, whether I'm in this area or not. It's that when they are in that area, they automatically do it. And I always think that there is always a learning curve to this where you start with it in preseason and then the way it's, it this this process works for MLS, I don't know about Premier League, but but what it is is that you try to perfect it by July, August, something like that. And that's when you try to like, okay, at this point, it should become automatic and you go from there. So because then is the most important part of the season in MLS, July, August, September, and then playoffs. So so that's what I would call prescriptive. Yeah, no, I think that's interesting. I think those three things kind of combine uh, really nicely to kind of summarize the data analyst uh, role with a lot of different clubs. Uh, I want to talk about a little bit about how you got to where you are. You, you grew up in India where, yeah. from what I can tell, soccer trails at least cricket in popularity. So what was your connection with soccer as a kid? Well, so, I mean, cricket is like just behemoth. Like it's just mm-hmm. not, you can't compete with cricket. But there are pockets in India that, that are just crazy for soccer as much as for cricket. Like if you go to... Um, um, northeast of the country, um, or in Bengal, Kolkata, and uh, you know, in, in the south, you go to Kerala and Goa on the west. They're like hotbeds of soccer. Okay. Um, and to always have been like that. That's always been the country. And India was always, I think, the second most popular sport in India is soccer by by a distance as well. Okay. Um, up to the third and fourth. I think growing up, my relation with soccer was that I was never allowed to play because all we had was. Uh, dirt and red clay playgrounds so Mm -hmm. and and if you play there and you get injured you're probably like you're gonna get really badly injured so so any sports like that like my mom would never let me play those cricket was okay because it's not as like you're not constantly running you could still get hurt but it's a little different so um it's not as as active um and you're not running all the time so so yeah, so that's how I, I've never played soccer until I was maybe I went to college, like 16 or something, okay. uh, 17. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I watched, I think the first World Cup I watched was 1990, Italia. Uh-huh. I mean, I knew about Maradona because I was always interested in soccer. So I don't know. I can't remember how it started, but started reading like sports magazine that we used to get once every month. And I would read that. And we had this tv program that was i think it was sometime it was espn it's an hour every sunday or a half hour every sunday where they show world of sport where so they'll show like all the sports from around the world and yeah. one of them was like like european soccer games so mm-hmm. always would wait for that for every week and mm-hmm. and used to hate it when they they cut the power at the time <laughs> so and because there's no like replay or like recording yeah. or anything if the power is off you're like you're out of luck so uh. So yeah, 90 Italia was the one I watched multiple games and uh, that's how it started. And then I think by 94, I think it peaked like 94 World Cup USA was um, mm-hmm. was when I pretty much knew almost every player on the, every squad in the World Cup. And I went to a, to do my undergrad. 
And one of the things that they do sort of uh, initiation is like, you have to answer some questions. And I would always tell them that you can ask me about any player, any team in, in the World Cup 94. I will tell you who <laughs> he is, what he does. <laughs> and I made a lot of friends with uh, senior people like that because I always knew everyone. And that's how I, that's kind of how I got into it. We should have roped you into our ESPN research team for some of those World Cups back in the day then. Uh, okay, so what drew you to the U.S. then? I know you went to college and studied at Clemson. Yeah, so what pulled I, you yeah. to, from India to the U.S.? So I, was, I did my master's at Clemson, but then when I graduated there in computer science, it was a recession period, so there were no jobs in the U.S. It was really hard to get jobs at the time. So I went back to India at the time and joined Microsoft India. Okay. And was working there for a couple of years. After that, they Microsoft, like any big multinational company, they always move people around, move projects around. So they decided to move my project back to the U.S. And they gave me the option whether to go with the project or find a different project in Microsoft India. I choose to go with the project, but two months after I came to U.S., they changed my project anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so I moved here and then I... I worked here for four and a half years at Microsoft. So then you joined the Sounders in 2013. How did you get from Microsoft to that first job in soccer? Well, that's a long story. This is where I think my <laughs> wife, Sarah, enters uh -huh. into the story as well. So I kept my enthusiasm and my love for soccer going. Like I've done, I, w I used to run a blog with some other friends uh, about La Liga. And, and so in English, so we used to record a lot of podcasts, and um, this was like uh, mid to late 2000s, like 2009, 2010, 11, like that. Spend a lot of time doing that, you know. Mm -hmm. I, my best things were talking to Ray Hartson three times, um, <laughs> and and I have to call his like uh, you know dial-up phone or something and yeah, call yeah. him home. Yeah. So um, so as it was working, and then we were I was working in Bing, and I also came to. Um, came in contact with Sarah. She's also in the same group. But the way we, we knew each other is because there is like a football email list in, inside Microsoft. And um, okay. so we, there's always going to be like arguments of who is the best team, who is a good team. And that's like, right. sometimes you get like these mail threads that go forever. That's how I came to know of her because both of us uh, are fans of VRL. And that's how, that's how um, I knew her. We used to meet up together and she was obviously a little bit ahead of me. Um, also smarter than me. So, um, so she, we would sit down and say like, yeah, we don't want to, we don't want to work in Microsoft forever. So, but we want to work in soccer, but how to do it, how to get into it. She was a little bit more advanced in that planning. Mm -hmm. And just, she took me to the Sloan conference in 2012. Um, sure. at the time, I think she started doing some work for the company. She eventually joined and then that eventually get bought by Arsenal. Um, right. And then she had just quit Microsoft um, a few months ago. I think she quit like um, late 2011. I was still at Microsoft. And I think I, I went to Sloan 2012 and met a bunch of people. When I came back, I was like, okay, I'll give my two-week notice to Microsoft because <laughs> I because I was trying to do trying to write blogs and try to do that in the weekends and stuff. It's really difficult because in Microsoft it gets so busy. And, you know, I was spending 50, 60 hours a week at work and it was really hard if I had to do blogs and write things down over the weekends. And then I go to go back to work on Monday, very tired. 
So, and then, so I quit and then I started working and I gave myself like, okay, by the time the next loan conference comes around, if I still don't have a job in soccer, I'll go back to software. That was my plan. So I started writing blogs, start talking to Opta to get some data, sign some NDAs and talk to a lot of companies at the time, publishing my stuff out there. And then, you know, that was right around the time Manchester City released some data. That was Mm -hmm. one of the projects in 2012. Uh, I took that data and then I published a lot of of, uh, reports and things off of that. And, you know, I was, I think, in, in some ways, my skills I picked up at Microsoft, data analysis, some coding skills and all those things really helped out to me to start off fast uh, out of the gates from that perspective. And then, you know, in the summer, I met Dave Tenney. Um, So Dave runs this conference. We still run it. It's like a sports science conference. Last year, we did sports science and analytics for the first Mm -hmm. time, the sounders. So we were now like in the eighth or ninth year of it. So he, uh, he invited Sarah to talk at the conference. And I went there um, after the talk. There was like a social, so so I went I went with her and I met Dave. And then he's also like a big soccer crazy. Like you know, we started talking about or like you know like um, a lot of Champions League and you know detail, like going into like super trivial and you know into rabbit holes of cricket. Uh, sorry, into soccer. And um, later on, he he and I would meet at. Starbucks and he would give me some data and I would analyze it and give it back to him next time we meet. That's the Sounders data. And at the end of the 2012 season, he, you know, he would show that the, the data, the the reports to the coaches and, and the GM at the time was Adrian, our owner. And then, mm-hmm. you know, at the end of the season, 2012 season, he asked me if I could join the team. So that was like December of 2012. And that's how I joined the Sounders. There you go. It's just that easy, right? Yeah. Uh, so uh, what do you tell people now? They're looking to get into sports analytics field. You had a bachelor's in engineering, master's in computer science. What do you tell someone comes to you and they want to get into this field now? What do you, or How do you kind of direct them or guide them? I think I always tell them my story and say, that worked for me, may or may not work for you. That's one mm-hmm. thing I always tell. Um, yeah. What I do tell them is that, just think about it as something very, it's a very niche field, not a lot of jobs. And not a lot of like uh, very structured things where like, oh, I, if I do these courses, then I qualify for this job and I can go do this. Right. So what I tell them is that the skills that you pick up, like data analysis, data science or statistics, probability, modeling, artificial intelligence, you know, all that coding, all that will help you get. A, there are a lot of data analysis and data science type jobs that probably will initially will probably pay you more. Than, than waiting to get into sports. So what I tell people is that you can build a portfolio of your sports uh, stuff, uh, but don't get frustrated if you don't get a job right away. Take some job where you can keep on getting your, uh, honing your skills of mm-hmm. what you need for football later. And one of the days you will probably get into an opportunity, just keep on the lookout. And when you get that opportunity, you can make a switch. I try not to give any false sense of hope that, oh, if I do all this, I'm good good enough to get a job in soccer, so I should get it because there is only, like if you think about it, in MLS, there's 26 clubs. Um, right. And you know even if all the teams had two analysts, which is not true right now, 
Mm-hmm. They, have, they have two or three that is still like less than 100 jobs. So that's a lot of like, but then everybody, there's a lot more population of engineers and, you know, um, and, and, and young people that want to get into sports. Um, so, so I always give them the idea that always have the goal to get into sports, but don't just fixate on just getting into it right away. You can do other things and still be build your resume for getting into sports at a later point. Right. No, that makes sense. You've mentioned uh, your wife, Sarah Rudd, who works for Arsenal. Mm-hmm. You've mentioned her a couple of times. What's it like for two, uh, two high-level club analysts having those two minds living together can you can you sit down and watch a game together or are the wheels always turning just what's that what's that like together yeah it's an interesting one uh well i think either the sounders game or arsenal game gets too tense i think for right. either one of us depending on who is playing mm-hmm. so it just gets really hard to have like constructive conversation yeah during that type of game but when we watch other games like uh, la liga or premier league other games we we do talk about what we are basically work-related stuff in the sense, okay, well, maybe this is the run we want them to do versus this is the space we want him to occupy or mm-hmm. why is he doing this? He should have gone there. Um, more like, it is just like, I think it is just like two fans, but probably a little bit more advanced, right? maybe. Right. Um, but I think these days, a lot of fans are also very knowledgeable. So I think they they, they probably have similar conversation. But yeah, and then we... Every now and then we bring up like metrics of like, okay, we measure this, we we look into this, or they look into that, and and then I was like, okay, you guys have more data and more people to work on, so it may be a little easier for us. It's probably going to be a little difficult to look into that specific aspect. So, mm-hmm. um, so so yeah, so conversations like that. I think the matches we we watch together um, are generally, I mean, not last year, but the year before. Uh, up until the year before, we used to watch uh, VRL matches together. Mm-hmm. Uh, we used to watch um, the U.S. women's matches together. I, we 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 drove up to watch the the final and oh, the yeah. World Cup in Vancouver. Nice. So I think I think she went to watch like four games. She bought a package of four games and the final, and mm-hmm. then I went to watch like two or three of those and the final. So that nice. was fun. Yeah. So I always like women. We watched the rain games. We used to watch them a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I always find the women's game a little like it's um, very uh, more structured because I think mm-hmm. maybe because they it's a little there is not a lot of frenetic activity maybe right. because it's a little slower I right. tend to see some of the patterns build and and you know methodical um, approach I think men's soccer is like I think it, there's a lot of like a high pressure game right now. So it's just very, very frenetic. A lot of times I think everybody's going that direction. Football is going to where it's just um, uh, periods of high intense pressure and then and then a break and then a high intense pressure and then a break. Like that's what I see where it's going now. Right. Uh, that's interesting. The, okay, the Villarreal thing. So we're going to move into our playing favorite segment to wrap things up. Villarreal, one of your favorite teams, and Sarah's one of Sarah's favorite teams. I have to ask how Villarreal came to be one of your favorites. Um, this is um, this is a backup. When I was in India, they they used to show the uh, Champions League and UEFA Cup games uh-huh. on TV, and and I was we always used to kick off very late at night, like midnight, um, and there was a year in the UEFA Cup, I think the year, two years before Villarreal went to the semifinal in Champions League, 
they went to the semifinal in the UEFA Cup. Mm. That was the year I started watching them okay. uh, because they would show they would show the later rounds. They wouldn't show the group stage. Right. So I started watching them, and they had this player named um, Sonny Anderson, like a Brazilian mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A forward. He used to do this um, celebration after scoring goals, like like just shooting with pistols. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so it's kind of like stupid things like that. So I started watching them, and I was like, okay, I need to watch that guy again. Like, so I started following them, and then after that, they started showing La Liga uh, very soon after, and so I started watching started following them a little bit at that time but it was always difficult to watch them because they used to only show madrid or barcelona match live mm, everything right. else was like highlights yep. um, and then when they did the run in champions league they started showing them so so that's how it sort of started there okay do you have a favorite number or a, a luck number that is always just kind of been your number my number is seven because i'm a right-footed um, person mm. So okay. I'm yep. right-handed, right-footed. So I always like the number seven um, is the right wing in mm-hmm. uh, in soccer. Although I'm not good to play right wing. If anybody asked me, <laughs> I would always pick right back. With no disrespect to any right backs in the right. world, probably people say that the worst player always plays right back. <laughs> right, you can hide uh, there a little bit. Yeah. So yeah. So I like I like number seven. It's 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 a number that I liked even before, even mm-hmm. unrelated to soccer. Um, I just like how seven with the with the dash across. That's how I yeah. like it. I like okay. how it looks. <laughs> so. well, yeah, but there's all kinds of crazy reasons things stick with us for sure. Uh, favorite athlete you had growing up? Any sport? Uh, favorite athlete? I think it's you know growing up was uh, was a cricketer um, mm-hmm. Kapil Dev. He's okay. uh, was the captain of India when India won the first World Cup in '83. Mm-hmm. Um, 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 and then he was my big favorite for a long time. And then uh, in terms of soccer, obviously, I like, um, I tend to like a lot more VRL players, Riquelme, and um, sort of like flawed players, I think, you know, the genius, but flawed. Right. <laughs> that seems yeah. to be my demographic. Um, <laughs> uh, and then there is a player in VRL called Kani, and mm-hmm. uh, no, not very well known, but he's, he's to me, he was uh, after, this is after the Riquelme era, like when, when it was... Casorla, Kani, and you know Senna, Pires, that team. Okay. I thought he was the. He used to wear number ten in that team. So. So and he had I to be the he, best, right? Yeah, he has to be the best, and he <laughs> was. To me, he was the most technically gifted player, but not the most, most like a disciplined player. Um, not somebody who took care of himself. But when he was on his game, he was like, his touches and his goals are like so crazy. Like that was my favorite player, Kani. Mm-hmm. Nice. I have like three shirts of his. <laughs> uh, do you have a favorite game that you've gotten to attend, whether it's professionally or just a, a game you've been to as a fan? Favorite game you've been to? I think professionally, there's a lot. I mean, I think, you know, the finals, um, sure. the two finals, um, also the Open Cup final in 2014 in Philadelphia. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that was my first title, uh, quote unquote, as much mm-hmm. as my, my role is. Right. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was that was interesting, and um, I liked uh, obviously this last final, um, not because it's the most recent one, but because the way the city mobilized and it mm-hmm. was just like it was amazing to see seventy thousand people and yeah. the 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 mosaic, the full stadium mosaic when they started the game, and and I mean I liked obviously the first final winning it in Toronto was pretty pretty good too, but there are a lot of games like they sort of blend. I think the games that I do remember are 
um, the one uh, that I really remember very vividly is the the second leg of the champ uh, the championship uh, the conference final against LA Galaxy mm-hmm. in 2014. Yep. Yeah. We lost the first leg one zero in second leg. The first half was just just insane. Like we should have probably scored four goals. Yeah, but, I, I was um, there for that. I was there for that game. I remember that. And yeah, was... uh, and it, we were sitting right next to the players bench then mm-hmm. um, and. Um, and like there is an advertising board in front of us. Some of the guys were kicking it so hard that it just the 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 the, the sheet of metal came off the frame. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was that game was pretty impressive um, to to be there to be part of, even though we lost. And uh, in terms of games, I visited as a fan. I think it's probably late 2013. Real Valencia, like it's a low derby in mm-hmm. in the Valencian community. Um, VRL one four one. That was, I think, the game where Giovanni dos Santos scored like two goals and two like Colossus. We were right behind where he was shooting at, and uh, that was very that was very special. Uh, one final question: Do you have a kind of how did I get here moment that is one of your favorites? One of those moments where you just kind of almost can't believe uh, where you've gotten to uh, with your life, with your career. Is a favorite how did I get here sort of moment for you? So I'll, I'll tell you, it, it'll be a little long winded answer to it. When we started the season at this home opener, they did like a segment, I think, uh, where they basically invited all the fans right outside the stadium to say what were their best favorite moments from the final work, like the people mm-hmm. that were at the final or that watched the final from home, whatever it is, at what moment they thought that we were going to win and how that, how did they celebrate that or things like that. So they right. made like a five minute clip of that. I think it was on the Sounders Twitter. I watched it and I watched it only like, last week like three days ago and i always think that 95 percent of the work is done by the players so but there's always other people's input that helps like you know obviously there are the coaches that are the first in line that are most influential on them and then there is all the support staff like us so when i watched that little video just five minutes there's like 10 or 15 couples talking about it guys talking about it i felt like that was the first time i felt that it just hit me about the final that yeah. how many how many people we made happy and what how people are going to remember those moments and and one of the guys i, I don't know who it was obviously if, if you watch the video you'll say he said that that he saw the march to the match and people were had their pa- faces painted so many of them he thought it was brave heart i was like that, <laughs> that's just that's just like that was the moment i was like wow i mean we always think that what we do is in the grand scheme of things, especially with everything going on around right now, maybe sure. it's not as consequential. Right. But I think if there's if there's going to be thousands of people that are going to keep that moment as like, oh, this is yeah. what this is this is the moment I will never forget it. Guys have mm-hmm. gotten like tattoos of stars on their hands and mm-hmm. stuff based on that. Um, I think I think that's when I hit like, wow, I've never thought that I would be here um, yeah. in this spot. And and I think and then you know going back from that like after I thought about it then I go back and look at individual matches and and then think about it all those moments where I walk on the field and or see the crowds and and then I get like goosebumps and then especially like you know the games against Portland where the stadium is full everybody that is Portland fans that have been there and they're also making a lot of noise and all those moments are like. They just sometimes they just blend in, but when something like this happens and you just think about it, I feel like I used to be in a in an office just typing <laughs> on a computer 
and uh-huh. going into meetings all the time. Um, I still use a computer now and type on the computer and being in office, but now part of my job is to watch these matches and work yeah. during these matches. And, and I think I feel like, wow, this is, this is so cool. And how did I make it here? Like, for example, my grandma still yeah. doesn't believe that I, I have a real job. Um, <laughs> yep. I hear you on that. <laughs> so, so yeah. So I think that's, that's my long winding answer that's for that. Good. Love ending it with a good story. So uh, Ravi Ramaneni, thanks for joining us here on Expected Value. Thanks, Paul. Thanks a lot. Back in the True Media Studios, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Ravi Ramaneni, Sounders Director of Soccer Analytics, for joining us on the show. Follow him on Twitter at AnalyzeFooty. That's Analyze spelled with an S. And check out our show notes for links to other articles about Ravi and his work. I'm joined now by True Media Senior Director of Data Science, Albert Larcata. Albert, like me, you've known Ravi for several years. Uh, what did you kind of pull out of the conversation with him? Yeah, I thought the, the, the most interesting piece to me was uh, the question you asked about the, the, the three different types of metrics effectively that uh, you have, the descriptive versus predictive versus prescriptive metrics that I think Ravi said was from a slide he gave in some presentation at some point. But mm-hmm. it's really interesting. Uh, it's I, I completely agree. There's the, the buzzword these days, especially on the team side, is you want to build predictive metrics. I want a predictive metric using tracking data. I want a predictive model that you know does X, Y, and Z. And that's true, but predictive metrics are necessary but not sufficient to get to where you want to go. Prescriptive metrics are where you want to go. You want to be actually putting those predictive models into action. You want, like if you're on the coaching side, I think Ravi's example was you know, you have a predictive model that says you should play this type of way, but how are you actually applying that? Is that in in a literal practice setting? Are you teaching your guys to do this types of thing that your predictive model said to do? Um, on the personnel side, are you putting this predictive model you've created for free agency or recruitment into practice? How are you doing it? How are you putting it into your processes? So prescriptive learning or prescriptive models, if you will, is actually where you want to get to. Predictive metrics helps you get there, but that's not actually the final goal on the team side. Yeah, I think you almost need coaches or the practitioners to kind of get to that point because you can look at all the data and say, okay, this these predictive metrics, we'll just stick with soccer. We'll say these expected goals numbers suggest that he's going to uh, be better at scoring goals than he has been. That's great. You still have to figure out how to get him into the offense and get him the ball. So it's not as simple as... We're going to sign this guy because his predictive metrics look good. You have to work with those coaches to do what you're saying, to take that next step and figure out how to prescribe it and make your team better that way. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. It almost gets to the communication side of things where you know you can have really smart people who build predictive models and they're great and you know they do what they're supposed to do. But but yeah, prescriptive is almost that like predictive plus communication, if you will, that takes it to the next level of applying it in a real world setting on a team. Yeah, I guess maybe the line is a little thinner in something like baseball, which is so kind of start stop and almost an individual sport. But the team sport, definitely that prescriptive element is important to to using everything wisely. And I kind of was thinking about it from a media perspective and how true it is there too. Not so much the prescriptive versus predictive part, but more the descriptive versus predictive because so much of uh, what media does is let's talk about what happened and use that to kind of frame what's going to happen. You know, the whole 
Monday after an NFL weekend, everyone's talking about what happened in the game and let's find some video to show it. And what are the numbers that tell us about what happened and all that? Those are all descriptive stats and descriptive analytics. And I think sometimes there's just a little, there's a gray area between those two. And sometimes people don't quite see it. We're just describing what happens or that this, these numbers are more suggesting what would happen. And it's a, it is, it's a little blurry sometimes, but there are, there are two very distinct things that do that serve different purposes especially at the team level and also at the media level sometimes you're looking forward so that's when your uh you know power indices or things like that can come in handy to kind of tell you what you think is going to happen but a lot of time it's it's descriptive and that's not a bad thing or a good thing it's just you're looking backward more than you're looking forward yeah xg and soccer is a good example of that where Mm -hmm. after a game you might say you know, this team had 2.7 XG and this team had 0.2 XG and the 0.2 team won. You're not, you know, you're not saying I'm going to predict that the 0.2 team is going to win all the time. In fact, if you were to simulate out this game 100,000 times, the 2.7 team is going to win whatever, 99% of the time or whatever it is. You're just describing it like this is what happens. This team got a ton of, had a ton of good chances, a ton of shots from close. They just didn't convert. This team had one good chance, converted, and they won. You're describing what just happened in the game. A predictive model would then, as you say, simulate out and tell you, well, the chances of the 2.7 versus 0.2 team winning is this percent. That's more predictive. But when you just state actual XG numbers from a match that just happened, you're just describing the match. Right. And that's where it gets kind of tricky, especially for something like XG, which is descriptive in the sense that it's describing the game, like you said, just like normal box score standard type of stats would and it can be predictive because over the long run players and teams tend to regress to the mean and that's where the predictive element comes in i think that's where the confusion comes in as well you got one stat doing two different things in different scenarios and it can get a little confusing all right thanks albert and thanks one more time to ravi ramaneni director of soccer analytics for the reigning mls cup champion seattle sounders for joining us on the program he's the first guest in our champion series in which we'll talk to people working for teams that have won titles in the past year Next week, we'll chat with Jonathan Tachis, the Washington Nationals manager of advanced scouting, about what an advanced scout does with the team and how he uses data. Please continue doing all the things that we like as podcasters. Subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts and spread the word however you can. Give us a follow on Twitter if you have a question or a guest suggestion at True Media Sports or email us expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. For now, on behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.